when you look at the distribution of PPP loans, particularly to people of color, the majority of them came through fintech platforms, which is ironic because we talk about, well, where's that relationship? The relationship is changing. And so I would say be prepared that so many things are going to happen via technology, but that does not undermine the need for a relationship with your banker between your customers. Welcome to the Next Gen Banker podcast, where we explore what's next in banking and talk with the innovators responsible for creating positive change in the financial sector. I am your host, David Ryling, and I am very excited to welcome Melissa Bradley to our show today. Melissa, it is so great to be with you today. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. Thank you. Pleasure. So just a quick uh, reminder for our audience to stick around uh, at the end and listen to our musical feature. Uh, each Next Gen Banker episode showcases one new artist from somewhere around the globe, representing a wide range of different genres. So be sure to check it out. It's quite cool. I dig the artists that we have for this episode. So Melissa, got to give the audience a little background on you. Uh, you are a co-founder of Eureka, which provides tools to small businesses to help them grow their digital presence. You are the managing partner of 1863 Ventures, helping new majority founders and teams with a plethora of tools uh, they need to be successful. And I love the description, new majority. We'll have to go there a little bit. Um, you are also co-founder of Sidecar Social Finance, which provides impact investing and capital services to investors and entrepreneurs. And if, I don't know how you fit this all in, but you're a professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business, which is also your alma mater, which is very cool. So welcome to the program, Melissa. And maybe I just start with the description, new majority. I, I love it. I, I It just resonates with me. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so I'm a, I'm a finance person, uh, and so I love numbers. And uh, ever since we've started using the term, people have had mixed reactions, but I think it represents a factual statement. The majority of the world already consists of people of color. The majority of America is about to consist of mostly people of color. Love it, hate it, afraid of it, embrace it. It's a fact. And many states, some of which we'd be surprised by, like Utah, are already outpaced by people of color. So from a demographic perspective, when we use the word minority to speak about people of color, it's just not quantitatively accurate. And then certainly, if you put it in the context of business and entrepreneurship, we had a 40% decline over entrepreneurship for the past 10 plus years. Over a million new businesses have been started since COVID, and the majority of those founders are Black women, followed by Latinas. And so when you think about who are the burgeoning group of entrepreneurs, Ironically, they're women of color. And so that both of those sets of statistics defy what we have decided is normal or traditional. And so I thought it was important that we start to use a, a term and a frame that really speaks to their quantitative presence, but more importantly, gives them greater power around their potential than just using the word minority, which tends to push people aside. Yes. And to me, it speaks so much of the future and, and what is positive from the standpoint of, gosh, when you when I think of the numbers and the demographics um, and the uh, the accretion to GDP, I mean, this is a positive for America and where in its growth and where it's going. And the inclusivity about it is all about how does we harness everybody in this in That's this right. journey? It just is there. And so that's right. Very cool. That's right. Yeah. And, and to your point, right, if we don't address it 
as the Citibank's report talked about, it, it racism costs us $16 trillion. So, I mean, let me just say flat out as an American, that's just a waste of money. Like I'm a practical person. And so I think that there is a financial and fiduciary duty that we have as a country. There is just a moral obligation. There's the factual opportunity for us to embrace what's changing about America, which makes us great. Yeah, very cool. So I have to ask you, with all the things you've got going on, uh, what are you passionate about these days? What's uh, Where's your mind at? So I, I, I finally came up with this phrase that I have one goal, but many roles. And so I do lots of things. But the general consistent theme is really helping new majority populations recognize their economic potential. Uh, not because I don't want to help other people, but that's where I think the greatest lift is needed. And so two things I'm most excited about. Uh, one is the set of conversations that I have the privilege to be a part of that really is starting to look at systemic change around the pathway for entrepreneurs. So not just continuing to piecemeal, let's do an accelerator here and let's do a fund here, but how do we really create a longitudinal pathway from startup to exit? What are the investment options? What are the liquidity options? And really just brainstorming with a bunch of experts in our own free time to say, how do we really re-engineer the system? Uh, and then the second thing I'm excited about is the fact that things are changing. Uh, you know, we have $300 billion of new money that was put in the hands of black general partners of which they never had access before. And I'm one of them. And so it's really exciting to see the level of investment that many of us have been waiting a long time for to be able to say we are ready to really start small business. And, and let me be clear, it's not just about me that that money is coming. But as you mentioned, in my role as co-founder Eureka, we have over 15,000 businesses on the platform that we see every single day busting their butts to try to get ahead and create jobs. And so these little pots of money that are coming, 5,000, 10,000, 100,000, they're really going to make a difference um, because statistically we know that if a business goes from one employee to at least one other employee, if they double their team, they can five to seven X their annual revenue, which is huge. So I say all that to say, yep, people are going to say I'm a quant geek, but I like numbers because it actually makes this entire thing palatable and possible. Love it. Um, I love where the data and the numbers come. And maybe that you can let's let me lead you right into uh, 1863. Can you tell us a little about it? What is sure. it? What's happening there? Um, I find it really fascinating. Yeah, so 1863 Ventures, it's six years old, uh, and it was started because there was a recognition of three things, uh, that not all businesses are the same, and particularly when you start to look at BIPOC communities, we are less than 20% of all of our businesses are in tech. So while there are amazing accelerators and incubators, most of our companies are not tech companies, and there weren't a lot of options for CPG, uh, you know, beauty, healthcare, food. So that was the one. The second thing is, no disrespect, but we found that most accelerator programs, over 80% of them focused on startups. And that's great, but knowing that less than, more than 50% of startups fail, how do we catch them? So we were very intentional of working with businesses that were already up and running and actually had revenue because they were left out there in the wind. Uh, and so our focus is really helping businesses who are already up and running past the founder hurdle to do scale, to grow, to grow their team to expand their market distribution. That's our sole focus. And so one could say we're like any other accelerator, except we don't automatically invest, but we're there to really de-risk the entrepreneur by training around finances, financing, operations, staffing, and scale 
to connect them to markets. We have outbound relationships with Target and Walmart and Whole Foods and lots of others. And then we actually did finally start a fund. And so we invest in them to be able to help them scale. But all of that is not just because we want to churn through businesses. We have a goal of creating $100 billion of new wealth by new majority entrepreneurs by 2030. Yeah, that is fantastic. And, you know, I just have to riff off that a little because uh, I listened to an interview, um, Talks at GS or Goldman Sachs, for those who don't know that uh, acronym. So and I think the question was around the barriers that entrepreneurs were were facing. And you led, like, write the answer with confidence. And then you went into access to capital and credit scores. And I was expecting those. Um, but being an entrepreneur myself, I, I was like, oh my gosh, confidence is the currency of the entrepreneur. It is what drives on a daily basis. I, I know from my own personal experience, I have my top 10 confidence builders. Um, I go to a program called Strategic Coach. It is it is what it is the fuel that keeps me going and the the optimism and sometimes the courage that's necessary to kind of overcome everything. And so, I mean, I, I think when you have that support from 1863 and the people around it, that it's providing you some of those technical skills, but also some of the real critical entrepreneur things that you sometimes only learn by hanging out with other entrepreneurs. Um, That's right. I mean, you really have to hang with that tribe to really kind of understand the mindset of of what it's like to, ah, I got to do payroll today. And yes, then I got to do marketing. And then, oh yeah, I got to figure out how to hire someone. I mean, it's, it's just every skill set imaginable. And it takes a lot out of an entrepreneur's, uh, I think, confidence to kind of rise up to it every day that they go to work. So I thought that so you're was absolutely cool. right. You, I, I love that. I actually wrote that down, that confidence is currency. I, I think it's key because particularly, you know, because we don't see a lot of images of entrepreneurs who are women and or people of color, our confidence already starts at a low level. And then when you don't hear other people being honest around, whoa, it's noon. And between now and three, I've got to do payroll and hire somebody and fire somebody and take care of my kids and turn in my audit statements to my back. We just assume that it's got to be so easy. And, and we find that so many of our entrepreneurs falsely have imposter syndrome when indeed I go, you're pacing with your peers by gender, by rate. You're, 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 it's a normal pathway. So I love that you shared that because that is it's a real issue for many entrepreneurs. No, absolutely. And I think you mentioned one other key thing, which I, uh, which is so true is that the personal and the business become intertwined. Like, Hey, I got to go to the dentist. I didn't do it last time because I had a meeting and you're like, no, you got to take care of yourself. You know, you, you have to merge these two together in some way, shape or form. Um, so let me switch to you, George Floyd. So not so much as the event, but as, as the trigger or the awakening, um, what do you see, maybe the good, the bad, the ugly, the optimism, the pessimism? Um, yeah. How has it changed things for you? Well, uh, so it's, it, it, I would say black people got more popular. Um, and and so, you know, I, I was, on a practical level, it hasn't changed much, unfortunately. Um, I live in Washington, D.C. Uh, I can still walk down the street and be followed or asked, is that your car or where do you live? So I think, you know, at a, at a general level, um, the cynicism and the skepticism around people of color has not gone away. Uh, I think that some of that is social, political, and historical. I would say that when it comes to small businesses, we, we saw a couple of things. We saw record amounts of contributions to Black-led organizations, to Black agendas that we had never seen before. And, you know, kudos to them. Um, I think what you found, though, in hindsight is all of those commitments that were made, less than half of them have been fulfilled. And so I'm optimistic that people were excited. 
uh, I'm concerned that people really didn't know what they were doing, that they didn't really understand how systemic and entrenched the challenges were, that not a single organization could overcome them. We're talking about policy issues and legislative issues at a federal level, state level. We're talking about people's opinions. A grant of $5 million is not going to change that. So I, I, I'm optimistic that people tried and, and hopefully they don't give up. I think from a business perspective, it's exciting that more money is now made available to businesses led by people of color, which is great. Uh, there's more funds led by black and brown GPs that we've ever seen before. And so that's great. Uh, so I think it was a moment of inflection for us to reflect and say, are we at least living the values that I think we were supposed to live as a country that everybody has equal access? And, and I think there were some good discussions. But you know, at the end of the day, I think there's still a lot more work to be done. Uh, you know, you alluded to this earlier. Yeah, you know, all the money that can be put out there for George Floyd doesn't change the, the inherent bias in a credit score. Uh, all the money that is flooded doesn't hasn't moved the needle on home ownership in our communities, which is a key asset when you're trying to start a business. So I'm optimistic that the conversations have changed. I'm mindful that people are have a heightened awareness and I think it's a longitudinal process and we'll see where it ends up. Yeah, those are really great comments. I mean, our uh, at sunrise, we feel like we're we're on this journey, and the hard work is just beginning. In in terms of great that there's money and funding available, now we got to dig in and partner with the likes of 1863s and and other folks in which to collaborate, in which to have the right set people up for success. Money is just one aspect of it, and it's important to a certain extent. But the fact is, is you need more sauce. You need more flavors in there in which to make the recipe taste taste good. You know, and, and people ask me, maybe I'll ask you the same question. You know, what can I do as a as a regular citizen to help? Like I'm not yeah. worth $10 million. I can't give that, but what can I do? What would you respond to that? You know, I think it's the tiny actions. I, I think it is just being much more mindful as you go through the day of who you interact with, how you interact with, and how you share those interactions. Yeah. Uh, you know, how you encounter somebody. I mean, I, 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 I'm from New York City. And so I'm used to, not because of my color, but because it's New York. When you get on the subway, you hold your purse. Uh, but even just that little action means like, huh, are you holding it? You know what I mean? So I think how we act, how we interact, and then how we tell those stories. Because I think the hardest thing of all of this, honestly, is that if we have a bad interaction, we oftentimes share that more likely than a good interaction. And that negative narrative just persists through community after community after community. So I don't think it takes a lot of money. I, I, you know, To your point, money is a means to an end. It's not going to solve our larger problems. But I think if people can change their mindsets, we're going to get a lot farther. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the funny thing that I do with people, because, um, again, it's it's always interesting. I don't know where everyone's coming from. You always have that. OK, where are you on the spectrum of being open to um, this? And I'm I start with a crazy question called, you know, do you like chicken? And they're like, well, yeah, I like chicken. I'm like, I know where the best wings are in Minneapolis. Do you want to have some really good wings? And they're like, yeah, I'd love to. I'm like, okay, it's Pimento's Jamaican Kitchen. It's the best jerk wings you're going to have ever. Um, but you're going to have to go to this place and you're going to have to get them and you're going to want to eat them there because the smells and the tastes are just there. And I go, will you promise me you'd go? And will you tell me when you do? Because oh, really, nice. once you get them out and in in engaging with people, it's 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 not so fearful, right? Um, That's right. So, anyways, That's right. you have to create I, the space and the opportunity. I love exactly. that. So when I come to Minneapolis, I'm going there. I'm We're going. going. Absolutely, going. we got a lot yes. of food here in Minneapolis. It's all good. So, tell me this from the standpoint of uh, we have a, a lot of uh, bankers and financier type folks on on the call, and a lot of them want to do good. 
um, and the fact is, is that uh, as we look out there, particularly whether it's a business or a bank um, that wants to do good, any advice when you kind of think about, you know, the doing well and the doing good, gosh, I got to make a living, but how do I kind of walk and talk my values at the same time of, of being inclusive and being sustainable for the environment? Any, any secret sauce there in terms of trying to integrate those two? So uh, I'll try not to put my regulator head on since I used to be a financial regulator at, at OTS back in the day. Um, I think there's a couple of things. Like, one, be patient with yourself. Um, change is hard. Whether you're trying to change your habit of not smoking or not drinking to your perception of people when you see them walking in the street. So first, be patient with yourself. Um, second thing, it's got to start within. Uh, so just do an assessment. Ask people. Create the space for folks to say, this is what's working and this is what's not working. Whether it's interaction amongst a diverse workforce or how people feel safe in a certain branch or how they feel when they look at their annual report and just allow people to have that safe space. And then obviously, when it comes to more financial things, you know, I would say re-examine how we do CRA. When I was at OTS, I was specifically in the CRA division. And, you know, it, it's an antiquated law. But really think practically. Don't think like, what is my regular going to give me as a score? But what are creative ways that I can really be in partnership with the community? Because I find that a lot of people know what their community needs. And sometimes it's a combination of grants and revenue-based financing and structured debt and, you know, a, a variable loan or whatever it is. And so I would say the final thing is as a finance person, we have a lot of tools in our toolkit that we don't use. And so be creative. And and I I bet that for something like home ownership, you know, I because I was a regulator, we'd say like, well, I tried to make those loans. And I'm like, I appreciate that you tried. But from a non-financial perspective, what did you do? Well, you know, we're here. I'm like, Find a local group that's doing home ownership training and send a staffer who's an expert. Create up a bunch of pamphlets you can give to home ownership programs say, this is how you prepare to, to get up for a loan. Or same thing for small business or allow people to, I mean, I know it's COVID, but allow people to come into your branch in a safe space and have a business meeting. It, it, everything is not about money. It's just really about being present and being available because everybody's needs and understanding of the banking world are going are to vary. And it cannot be one size fits all, which I know we're tempted to because, you know, it's expensive when you try to scale and, and be differentiated. Yeah, I hear you. But, you know, I I think that's one of the secret sauces in this whole thing, particularly for maybe a lot of the bankers on is um, your difference, your uniqueness is yep. your differentiator. It's the place right. where it's going to be profitable, if you will. But if you do the same old thing or you're standardized, don't expect a different outcome. Um, right. You got to put yourself out there. And so I always tell the some of the newer lenders, I'm like, you just be yourself because everybody else is taken. Don't try to be like so-and-so and so-and-so. <laughs> You're going to come with your own uniqueness and that's either going to be good or bad. You might be in the wrong place, but you'll find out. But if, if you're right. trying to be someone else, you're always going to be struggling with yourself. And so try and be a little unique, get out there. So yep. one final question for you. This is the next-gen banker question. What does the next-gen banker look like? What do they possess to make this world better, more equitable, more sustainable? Well, wow. That's, that's a great question. I would say uh, they're younger and hipper than the bank characters that I grew up with, which is the blue suit, the white shirt, and the red tie. I would say they're mobile. Uh, I would say they come to you versus you going to them. I would say they're digital natives. And so they're able to talk to you on the phone, in person, text you, slap you, whatever the case may be. Um, they're highly empathetic. 
because they recognize that the best way to retain a customer, to your point, is to understand their differentiation. And so they're consistently trying to find out your needs and be empathetic. And I would say they're also innovative. Uh, you know, and there's definitely a technological play. When you look at the distribution of PPP loans, particularly to people of color, the majority of them came through fintech platforms, which is ironic because we talk about, well, where's that relationship? The relationship is changing. And so I would say be prepared that so many things are going to happen via technology, but that does not undermine the need for a relationship with your banker between your customers. Wow. Fantastic. I love it. The high tech, the high touch, the relationship still very key. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us today, offering your insights. It's always great to uh, share thoughts with you uh, and connect. Uh, wish you all the best in all that you're doing. And thanks thank again you. for being on The Next Gen Banker. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. For this episode's musical feature, we're showcasing The Choir. The Choir is a Nashville-based, Grammy-nominated alternative rock band whose music has been described by the Los Angeles Times as magical songs that combine strains of murky psychedelia with pure pop. Here is Mystical World by The Choir. I'm wandering weary and alone I'm dust and tears and bones I'm nobody's garden, no Honey, please walk me home To the mystical world Honey, please walk me home Take my hand, sweet girl Honey, please walk me home To the mystical world That was Mystical World by The Choir. You can find The Choir's music on Spotify, Apple Music, and most other streaming platforms. If you would like your music featured on the Next Gen Banker podcast, email david at nextgen-banker.com with a link to your music and website. Thanks for listening to the Next Gen Banker podcast. We'll see you next time.